Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Aha! Hi everyone, I'm Susie White and welcome to episode 12 of the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast. In this podcast, I talk with food entrepreneurs, innovators and startups to get behind the scenes and find out what they're doing to build a business and make their mark on the Australian food industry. And at the end of each chat in the aftertaste section, I give you a brief insight, learning or secret of success that I've gleaned from my guests' experiences that might just help you in your own job or business. Today, I'm talking with two co-founders, Sarah Holloway and Nick Davidson. One is a former corporate lawyer and the other a serial tech entrepreneur. And together, they're the creators of Matcha Maiden, a range of matcha powder products. They're also the co-owners of the award-winning cafe Matcha Milk Bar with business partners Mark and Attil Filippelli. Matcha Milk Bar is a plant-based, sustainability-driven cafe which first opened in St Kilda, Melbourne in 2016 and has expanded this year to Surrey Hills in Sydney. In this episode, you'll hear how Sarah was unable to drink coffee for health reasons and became hooked when working in Hong Kong on the nutritional properties of matcha powder for its distinct flavor, high level of antioxidants and gentler caffeine levels. And how on their return to Australia in 2014, Sarah and Nick started an online business importing and selling matcha powder which not only fueled their own daily matcha latte habit, but also created a community of like-minded wellness followers. This humble side project has evolved into a business with over 1,500 stockists locally and internationally. Plus, in this episode, you'll learn about the trickle-down effect and how to know when a fleeting food trend will become a more mainstream mass appeal opportunity. So welcome to the podcast, Nick and Sarah. Thank you so much for having us. This is exciting for me. It's the first time I've had two co-founders on together, so it's great to have you both here today. I thought it would be great to set the scenes for the listeners and maybe just tell us what your role is in the business and a little bit more about what your business does. So I am uh, the sort of GM all-round operations manager uh, at Match and Maiden. So I do all the day-to-day logistics, um, coordinating any of uh, the outsourced roles that we have or the in-house. We've got a part-timer and a full-timer. Um, and then in Match of Milk Bar, I do a lot of the social media, the events, the creative and kind of the community coordination, having bloggers in, running events, um, and just keeping the message out there and making sure that the place is busy. Yeah, and then Nick? Yeah, so with Match of Maiden nowadays, um but so our our agency also does the all of the design and creative, and which is quite quite a lot across. I mean, we've got three key areas of the world which all need different marketing. We've got uh, three websites that we maintain, uh, as as well as all of the multiple SKUs that we're constantly re- redesigning the packaging just for little modifications. So in Matcha Maiden, we, we manage a lot of that as well as I, I tend to manage a lot of the top line 
decision making with alongside Sarah and I'm the numbers guy. Uh, with Milk Bar, it ranges. Uh, we again we do all the design work um, and a lot of marketing. And I often am the Mr. Fix-It that comes and fixes things when it breaks as well. I love the idea that you both wear multiple hats, which is kind of necessary in your own startup business. Let's talk about the product itself. Tell us a little bit about how you first got interested in in Matcha and and thought to build a business around that. So it actually started uh, as quite a happy accident, which I think quite a lot of businesses start that way. I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer when I first started my career and was obviously needing a lot of cups of coffee per day to get through the long hours of an M&A lawyer. And uh, in my first year, Nick had been working with the Youth Generation Against Poverty through his Bushy Creative Agency and supporting the Five Cent campaign. So we had the opportunity to spend a month in Rwanda helping build schools and see the impact of where those funds were going. It was the most incredible experience that we've ever had. Um, but ended up bringing home a parasite. The typical A-type personality, I just went straight back to work and kind of ignored all the signs and ended up with uh, adrenal fatigue, just a complete burnout. And I was told at that stage that I couldn't drink any more coffee because it was just too harsh on my body. And then I got sent to the firm's headquarters in Hong Kong and Nick came over as well. And he was also trying to reduce his coffee intake just to sort of go out in sympathy for me. And we discovered matcha is so easily accessible in Asia. It's not really, you know, the buzzword that it seems in the West. It's been around for centuries. It started as a Zen Buddhist monk ritual um, and is a very important part of Japanese ceremonial culture. And uh, it had spread to Hong Kong and was really easily accessible in cafes. So instead of going out and just having a drink of water because I couldn't enjoy a coffee with everyone, I could have a matcha. Uh, and then Nick was using it in his pre- and post-workouts to sub out his coffee intake. And we just found that it was a really healthy alternative to caffeination. So you could still get almost half the caffeine of coffee but without the crash or the negative impact on your adrenals um, and your, your body. And then we came home to Australia and couldn't really find it anywhere. Like we'd got gotten really hooked on it and then couldn't find it anywhere except T2 in a very expensive ceremonial context, so not for everyday use, or in uh, like an Asian grocery without any English labelling and often with added sugar or added brown rice protein and just uh, not clear that it was harnessing its health benefits. Uh, so we decided maybe we'll try and get some for ourselves online and that led us to Google, which led us to realising we could only find matcha in bulk and that we'd have a lot left over on our hands to get rid of. So we sort of thought, why don't we start a creative project on the side that gives us an excuse to spend a bit more time together, that uses all our complementary skills. Yeah, so that was the start of the first business, Matcha Maiden, which is um, has basically just been blazing a bright green trail and bringing matcha back from its ceremonial context into a modern, um, more accessible and affordable context. What an amazing startup journey, first of all. So out of a personal pain point, having this adrenal fatigue and having to manage your own consumption and, and intake of caffeine, you found this great opportunity. But I'm imagining, Sarah, so you're still working as a corporate lawyer at this stage. And Nick, you're a serial entrepreneur anyway. You've got a creative business running was there room in your lives to start a new business at this stage? It definitely wasn't. At the time, <laughs> I had um, I just launched an app. Uh, I was midway through our seed funding round for an AI startup as well as having out my agency, which was quite busy. So 
it was it was a pretty stressful time to be doing something like that. But it was all quite organic the way it all started. It was and it was fun because startups are fun at the beginning. I, oh, sorry, no, yes, they, <laughs> they stay fun for a while. But like it was so exciting because it was it was scaling. It scaled so fast. So from the first day we did it, we had a bit of fun with our Instagram and. Um, we did a soft launch and with 10 kilograms, 10 kilograms of matcha is, I mean, it's one to two grams of syrup. So it's a lot of product. Uh, we sold, sold it in 70 gram bags and we sold out within a week. And that was pretty incredible. And Sarah actually couldn't find the details of the person that we bought it off because we didn't expect it to happen. We'd be packing it ourselves in our friend's commercial kitchen in our underwear because it was in summer. Um, and we didn't want to get fibres in anything and shower caps on. Looked like Breaking Bad, but with green powder. <laughs> like it was a lot of fun. And the the advantage of Sarah's language skills, she speaks eight different languages, is that we go instead of all of these other our com- people that was trying to copy us, where they have to go through all these different people. We go direct to the farm. We talk to the farms. We talk to people picking the tea in Japanese. It's it makes our life, it was fun, it was enjoyable and then it scaled up quite rapidly and unfortunately for Sarah, her job at the time was also, it suddenly became quite full on um, and so did mine. So I mean, she'd get home at 9pm and yeah, I'd have been gotten home at 7 and we'll have been packing matcha into bags until 1 o'clock in the morning and then facilitating all these orders and it, it was quite stressful uh, but it was also a lot of fun uh, and I think because of the scale of it it kept us super motivated I don't know how we'd be going if it was working as much as we were if there wasn't that exciting scale at the beginning and so that first batch you obviously sold that 10 first 10 kilograms very quickly was that just friends and family and connections or did you actually promote it beyond that in any way our friends and family, like we said, don't go and buy it. We'll, we'll, we'll give it to you. It was actually people that were feeling a need for it. And then there was people that were curious. So people were like, oh, hang on, what is this thing, uh, this product? And we also knew that selling it once doesn't mean you're going to sell it again. Uh, so it's all about your repeat customers and about being sustainable as a business. So we didn't want our friends blowing smoke up our backsides just to be blunt we did find though that back then when we launched social media was a very different environment there was no algorithm it was a lot easier to gain traction you know by being consistent by having really good quality beautiful educational content the benefit of me being at a desk on a computer all day was that I had a little bit of time in my breaks to build that social media um, interaction and community we did it three weeks before we even started selling and I don't think we even announced what the product was we were just curating the right audience that were open-minded well-being focused ready for new superfoods um, so by the time we launched you know we had a thousand people at the beginning that were already keen to find out what this product was some of them had obviously heard of it before so it wasn't just you know word of mouth it was um actually like strangers who had already been following and waiting for that announcement, which was a really exciting thing. A lot of work, yes. I feel like you were definitely at the forefront of the matcha boom. What were you telling people about the product? Did you have to focus on just simply increasing awareness of what it was and what it did? Absolutely. Obviously, the the branding and the building our community, we call it, is all a really big part of it, but also timing was so crucial. We just hit the market before there was really any branded matcha out there but there was matcha popping up in cafes or you know all across the US there were matcha smoothies there were matcha lattes so we hit at a time when 
we did have to push a lot of education about what it was, but we also had a whole lot of people who had heard of it or tried it before and had just been waiting to buy it. So the first year was either reinforcing that it had so many health benefits that ours was an accessible, um, organic, reasonably priced, focused on that health benefit sort of middle middle ground market and it wasn't the traditional ceremonial or ingredient grade that just didn't really suit that kind of health food market. And then the other piece of education was why matcha is amazing if you've never heard of it before and how it's simply green tea leaves ground into a fine powder. It's nothing intimidating, nothing you haven't seen before. It's just a more potent form. So that was the first year. In the second year, we started to have a lot of copycats pop up as people sort of caught on to the trend. By then, you know, we'd seen it come out all over the press, all over the media, and we rode that wave pretty much as the first to market. But in the second year, it changed from not just why is matcha amazing, but why is our matcha different? And that was a really big pivot, particularly because we've, in both of our experience has really well equipped us for business. Um, but even Nick, who's a serial entrepreneur, had never done food or a product or FMCG. Um, so the marketing environment was so different for us. So we were suddenly like, oh my gosh, it's not, you know, what a year in we had an educated market, but now we have to convince them that there are different grades and there are different qualities and different flavors. And, and I think, I mean, when we first started the business, we were looking for an online business. We quickly realised, and luckily we quickly realised, that food as an online business is not a sustainable thing. So once something is on trend at the very beginning, people buy it online only because they can't buy it in a shop. Then once it becomes a little more mainstream, they want to just pick it up when they go shopping. They want that instant gratification. They don't want to have to wait a day or two for it to arrive. So we hit wholesale and cafes early and hard, and it meant that, Everyone was doing our marketing for us then. It really helped us there. And tea, the tea category is very brand-focused. There, you, you don't go into Woolworths and Coles and sit there and, and buy home-brand tea. 1% of that category is private label. It's 99% branded. So we quickly realised that we need to build a brand and build a brand well rather than just blog tea online. Who was your ideal distribution customer? Who did you want to target and to pick you up and go through wholesale? Were you ever tempted to go, well, let's go knock on Coles and Woolworths store? At the very beginning, we, we had some quite good contacts at Coles that we thought we could chat to. Um, and we decided not to at the very beginning. And we decided to focus more on the health food and cafes and pharmacy side. That was just because of the immaturity of the product at the time. And we, we realised that we were never ready to go into Coles and Woolworths back then anyway. So uh, we're lucky we didn't. We were very, very fortunate to pick up Urban Outfitters quite early in our um, business journey. And we're lucky to get that. I'll let Sarah explain how we almost lost that. <laughs> so this was actually the pivotal point when I um, ended up leaving the law firm we got Urban Outfitters um, through the power of our social media, which by then had grown. It was six months in. It had grown really big. Um, and they emailed us saying, oh, we love what you're doing. You know, could you do something custom for us? And I was so overcome that, you know, we were still packing it ourselves. I was like, there's absolutely no way the real Urban Outfitters has found, you know, a couple packing in their undies in the garage. Um, so Nick had said to me when we first went into e-commerce, he's like, 
you're really gullible, babe. There's lots of people out there trying to scam people on the internet. If you hear of a Prince of Nigeria scam, like just don't give anyone your details. So I just ignored the email. I thought it was spam. And he he asked me three weeks later because we both were sharing the inbox at that time. He was like, how did that go? That's like the biggest opportunity we've ever had. And I was like, you'll be proud of me. I ignored the scam. <laughs> I mean, 180 stores across the US have got. <laughs> wow. So you seriously ignored the email and said, no, 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 that can't be real. Yeah. I just was like, there's no way. It's just not even. <laughs> and look, so they ordered, I think, 500 units at the start, which was huge. And then a second purchase order of 50. Well, we get an email saying, look, we just need to revise the purchase order, see attached, and like, uh, oh, well. We thought they'd cancelled it. And um, then it was, I think it was 10,000 units they wanted. Like, it wasn't a big financial win for us, but it was a big brand win. Like, sometimes you need these little motivational wins within your business to just be like, wow, these guys saw us. We're onto something. It gave Sarah that catalyst to quit the law firm then and for us to help try and scale the business. When you were talking about going into the major retailers at the beginning, for us, it would have been amazing if we had pitched and got in, but we we couldn't have funded it. Like yeah. we we haven't had investors yet. We just we worked from five grand of capital for the first order of stock, and the business has funded itself since then. We've never really had to inject any more money because we've grown, for, you know, from us packing to one manufacturer to another, and just taking it step by step. And that allows you to firstly learn what on earth you're doing. And also to like work out the pain points and, and scale gradually. And we just couldn't have like kept up with the volumes. And I think you get one chance in that environment. And it was also too mainstream, like in boutique food, health food stores hadn't even heard of it at that point. So I think it was a good decision not to go out too hard, too far. Let's talk about the products. How did you go on that journey versus those 70 grand bags you started with? When did you know what was the right range to bring in and sort of the right formats for that? Sarah's genius, this one. Sarah wanted to do collaborations all the time uh, and she came up with this idea of a different collaboration each month. Yeah, we love puns. I called it the collaboratory. So what we'd do is we'd collaborate with different brands and different people to help them as well as us. But also what we were doing is silently doing a bit of market research on, on what our customers actually want. Yeah, so we started with a um, matcha protein ball with a protein ball company called Fit Mixes. We did bath salts. We did um, one of our good friends has an organic uh, skincare company that has less than five ingredients. So we did a matcha moisturizer. Uh, we, we did a chocolate. Yeah, 12 different products over the year and just measured which ones did better, what there was more demand for, what ran out. And also it allowed us to sort of cross promote with different audiences and, and get a lot more exposure that way. Then the year after, um, we ended up doing a rebrand towards the end of the year just because, again, copycats had started to come out and literally copy our bag and our label almost exactly. So we had, I had to put my lawyer hat back on and send out a few cease and desist that year. But we ended up just deciding it's time to lead the market again and be proactive instead of reactive. So we rebranded um, and changed from like a harvest kind of organic farm-to-table brown bag to a more sleek white bag that was printed instead of having a sticker on it. And at that same time, we thought this is a great time to launch some permanent extensions to the line range based on what went well the first time. But until then, that was two and a half years in, we kept only the hero because we were like, it's hard enough to educate people. By two and a half years in, we thought it was time. People had been experimenting themselves as well and sharing their recipes of different like enhancing different functions of the matcha. So they would add mint and ginger to boost immunity. They'd add cinnamon and pepper to boost their metabolism. And so we thought 
these common combinations, we can add them into blends. So we introduce two of those and then a raw vegan matcha mint choc chip slice mix, which you just add coconut oil to, shove it in the fridge, and then you've got a really healthy protein-based snack. Um, again, sort of getting into that whole convenience angle that if you don't like the taste of matcha, you can consume it in food as well, which was a good a good line extension to sort of push that versatility point. So whether it was the matcha lovers, the health freaks or the foodies and that type of thing there is to give something for everyone there that will also not cannibalise our hero product. So they've gone really well and we've got another another couple of things um, in the pipeline. And then we just continue to use collaborations as a really good research point. So we did a big one with Loving Earth, who are our absolute all-time favourite chocolate um, creators. We did a matcha caramel um raw vegan chocolate with them that just flew and we sold a bar a minute when we first launched Mm. it for a couple of days it was just so popular so and that's something that now we're like wow there's obviously a really high demand for chocolate so maybe we should look at making that permanent um so it's, it's really all an experimentation there's not a lot of research out there to help because it's a very new market so we're kind of feeling our way through and um, social media is such a great way to get direct feedback on ideas that you have. We do a lot of polls to take votes on what should be, you know, the next flavour or what we should tweak in the current recipes. It's just an ongoing NPD process, um, which is actually what keeps it so exciting. It's time for a quick break now. When we come back, you'll hear how Sarah and Nick continue to build the Matcha Maiden brand and add to their online wholesaler business with the launch of a bricks and mortar cafe called Matcha Milk Bar, focused on plant-based Blue Zone Longevity Food. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible. It's the Food Innovation Centre at Monash University. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only one in 10 food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means nine out of 10 fail. If you'd like to be one of the businesses that gets it right, the Food Innovation Centre at Monash can help. They can design and bring your new product ideas to life with rapid design and prototyping and help you understand your shopper better and product performance on shelf. They can also get you connected to build a network with like-minded businesses. Check them out at www.foodinnovationcentre.com and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Holloway and Nick Davidson, the co-founders of Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. And you've heard so far how in the first two years since launch, Sarah gave up her job as a lawyer and Nick is triple hatting his creative agency and a startup while importing, packing and selling matcha powder. You heard how they started doing monthly collaborations with chefs or bloggers and other well-being brands to create new matcha-based products. And so I asked them whether they were comfortable trialing and testing so many different products from bath salts to face moisturizers and chocolate bars and how they landed back in the food space. One of the big things we love doing is working with other small businesses because there's such a strong an amazing small business community um, that can really support each other in our growth. We worked with companies that could do really low MOQ, so the risk wasn't super high. You know, a lot of them were handmade products at the time. The bath salts was like a one-off blend, so we only did, I think, a couple of hundred units of that. So at any one time, it was only for a month. 
the risk wasn't very high. And we're always doing, you know, gift with purchases or rewarding our most our highest purchasing customers per month or per year or sending things out to bloggers to thank them for posting. So there was always going to be a use for those products because they were such a limited run. So we were quite conscious of reducing our risk during that time. So it wasn't really that scary. We're ideas people and we love how far we can push the product and, and really show what it can do. But sometimes you just need a focus and that year was a, a, a major, if you looked at it not from a research and R&D and a community building perspective, it was a serious distraction. Yeah. So while it was an amazing bit of market research, but Sarah's so right, we kind of let our competition get some traction there of selling the core product. Don't get me wrong, we very quickly regained that traction and, and market share, but it was a big wake-up call with that just going, oh, like making a product that's so far out of our niche was probably not the smartest idea at the time. But it also showed like, okay, that's not the right thing to do. People don't want a match of bath salt. I think people got really excited about the limited nature as well. So we ended up selling out all the units but thinking that's not going to sell as a permanent skew. But the other thing was that the face masks, for example, they went really, really well, but the supply chain was just too difficult to manage. And it's really interesting that everyone tells you, you know, you have to learn to say no to the things that you don't want to do. But the hardest learning for us has been learning to say no to the things that you do want to do because you realise there's too many of them. Like you just can't maintain a, a skincare business and a food business and a, you know, bar salt business. It's just too hard when you've not got enough staff and it, it ended up meaning that the hero, which was, you know, some companies only have that, that kind of falls to the background and we weren't big enough at the time to sustain all of those different areas. So I would love to go into skincare. Green tea is one of the highest performing ingredients in a lot of companies, but I think it's just not our area of expertise. Food already wasn't our area of expertise, so we're doing a lot of learning at the time as well. And it was just a matter of, um, you know, picking your battles. Like what are you going to be able to really make an impact on and don't dilute that just for the sake yeah, of right. yeah. what it looks like. But just because people want to buy it and just because it's exciting doesn't necessarily mean it's the right business to be going sometimes to. <laughs> the problem is we love building businesses. Like it's the pro- we're super passionate about the product, but we love applying all our creative brain explosions to the build out in the beginning. And so we can like everything that happens now, we're like, oh, that's a good business idea. Let's build it into a business. And then we're like, no, we need to just focus on the, we've already got two business babies. You know, sometimes you spread yourself too thin. So we've kind of limited it to two match focused businesses for now um, and have to really rein ourselves in. Because you guys had so much free time anyway. Let's now talk about that other part of your business because we've been talking about the matcha products and the online sale of the powders and getting distribution for those. But you did also launch the matcha milk bar. And how did that come about? Why was that sort of the, the next step for you? Again, it was a really lovely, happy accident. And I think um, one of the things that I've had to learn moving from a very risk averse five to 10 year plan kind of environment in corporate to business where you just don't know what's happening sort of five days ahead, um, is that you just have to be open-minded to what the pathway is because opportunities will just land on your lap and you have to sort of just go with them. So our business partner, Mark, and his brother, Atil, are sort of hospitality heavyweights in Melbourne. They have quite a few venues. And one of their cafes was our first cafe stockist for Matcha Maiden. And we ended up travelling in the US together 
uh, up, we were looking at beverage trends and they were looking at food trends. And so we did the cafe circuit and just were eating and drinking our way around. This sounds like a horrible experience, by the way. <laughs> um, Sarah needs an excuse to go to a cafe. And, <laughs> and we noticed that the two big trends were plant-based eating and much drinking. And we discovered the Blue Zones research, which are the five areas of the world where people live dramatically longer than anywhere else. But there's been a lot of studies into what are the common features that make people live so much longer. And one of them is a majority plant-based diet. Um, and the Blue Zone with the most 100-year-olds in the world is Okinawa in Japan which has an extra longevity based on matcha drinking. So we sort of thought, oh, my gosh, there's this whole longevity-based um, sustainability focus that hasn't really been tapped into. No one's really done a longevity cafe. There's lots of vegan cafes, um, eco-cafes, but there's nothing that's really focusing just on, like, how can we make the planet last longer and our bodies last longer in a way that the mainstream won't be deterred? So we thought, let's do a pop-up. Like, we're the match drinking experts. They were the cafe and food experts. Why don't we do a venue that's based on bringing these Blue Zone principles to the mainstream? Um, and we'll base it on, on this miracle matcha because that's, you know... It can be used in food, so we've got matcha pancakes, matcha waffles, matcha broth, matcha burger, and then obviously all matcha lattes. Um, and we want people to know that plant-based food is delicious and you don't have to be plant-based 100% of the time. But if you can just eat one or two meals per week more than you would otherwise, that creates sustainable change. Um, and we've developed things like a vegan egg. We've got a delicious um, soy-based chicken burger, which is so close that a lot of people thought that it was actually chicken. Uh, everything is Instagramable. It's pun central, really accessible. Um, it's a bit of fun. I mean, there's a famous uh, plant-based athlete called Rich Roll. He had a really good statement at, at one of his conferences saying, be the lighthouse, not the light. So let people come to you and, and, and people see you rather than go out there to them. Uh, and we re really resonated with us. And you can come to Milk Bar and not feel like you're going to have dead chickens and dead cow, like really graphic imagery put in your faces and stuff like that about veganism because that's not what veganism is. I mean, it's an incredible thing. I mean, if, if we can decrease people's um, animal consumption, it's going to change the world. And it's really evident that this is a big trend. And when we launched Milk Bar two years ago, there was nothing south side of the city vegan. So we tried to open up this restaurant as a really fun Melbourne breakfast style place. And the statistics at the beginning were ridiculous. We actually got 10,000 Instagram followers in four days based on a really strategic launch that we did. So our launch, we had an amazing group of people there and, and, and amazingly Instagramable food. And back then, everyone posting at the same time meant we got up in the explore bar and we suddenly went crazy. Uh, we had a up to three hour wait for a table for our first six months. It was pretty incredible. We've also had um, old mate Chris Hemsworth come in um, and he was interviewed by the New York Times recently about what are his favourite things in Melbourne and one of the questions was... So the question was, what's the best thing about Melbourne? And he, his answer was matching milk bar and St Kilda. <laughs> it's a pretty heavyweight endorsement there. <laughs> I know. We were just like, oh, okay. <laughs> sure. Again, that question you had at the beginning with, with like where you're just selling to your friends and family, it still baffles us that it's not just our friends and family that like keep us afloat. Like when you see strangers in there, it's like, oh, my God, they're strangers. That's so cool. Well, when we go and we see like we'll walk past the store in the US and wander in and 
there's like match match maiden there and even in Australia, we'll wander past the cafe in Sydney and see some of them. I mean, we've got 1,500 stockists around the world, so it's pretty awesome to see sometimes. Like even my country town I grew up in, there's a couple of stockists. Very surreal feeling. Yeah, so, okay, that's a beautiful lead-in. What's next for your business? We're on the cusp of a new chapter. The Chobani program was really like doing a mini food MBA. Every gap that we had from just coming from you know, having no industry background, not having any experience in food or freight or logistics, that's really helped us fill all those gaps and also given us mentors. You know, in business, it's really hard to find mentors who have the right expertise, mm. who are, you know, the right level of years ahead of you so they're not too far, that the environment was different and they're not too close, that they're competitive. So Chobani Food Incubator Program just really filled all of those gaps. FMCG is just its own little beast and being able to pick up the phone and give Peter Meek a call, the GM of Chobani Australia, and you've got these guys that have just had so much industry experience even prior to Chobani. Their generosity in, in putting us through their incubator program has made us be able to look at every aspect of our business and work out how we can scale it up. So it's pretty exciting like having these mentors now. We haven't really sort of let it all mm. culminate in what the next chapter is because there's just been so much learning in areas that we really didn't even expect would develop so much. So we've changed manufacturers. Um, we've got a lot of new product ideas on the horizon. I think really it will just be continuing on the matcha mission to expand the opportunities and the occasions that you can bring matcha into your life. Um, we actually left the program with a new tagline for our business, which is there's so matcha more to life. So it's all about matcha is the hero and that showing mm. how it can make you feel better, but also building a community that's passionate about showing everyone beyond that how much more there is to life. So we need to spread that, that now to the masses. Uh, it is going to scale. It's a branded category. We're the current leader. We need to maintain that position as the category expands. As we go As, mainstream. So there's a lot of processes we've got in place that we're working on now on scaling, on driving trial, on accessibility, education. It's it's become a very, very different beast to three years ago, definitely, in it's different environment. But we've got the right things in place now. Fantastic. And and thank you for talking through that uh, that incubator because I think there was a bit of media and I definitely saw you were on their list. And for someone from the outside looking in, it kind of was like, well, why do they need that? They're there up and running. But it's it wasn't a startup incubator, was it? It was a scale up and, and get you to that next stage of business. Right. And the thing is, like, I've, I've been in marketing and branding and development myself for decades and and sound sound very old saying that but well over a decade and going in there the marketing and branding week i was like oh god i'm just going to like do my emails or something but i was just on the edge of my seat writing notes because you don't often get to do that to your own business you don't get to break your own business down and really attack one particular section of it with a fine tooth comb and and eat, especially when you're a startup, like when you're a company like Chobani and you've got people dedicated to each different facet of the business, that's one thing, but we wear multiple hats in, in a startup. So for us to really spend a week looking at just what our brand focus and marketing focus is and write our strategies out, even though we already know what they are in our head, just to write them out and visualise them. You can't modify something that's not written down, in my opinion. So... Uh, yeah, it was, it was very, very good and it's already 
it's already shown on on where our business has moved since the the actual structure program was on. If there are other food entrepreneurs or wannabe startups listening, what would be your advice to them? I'm a big quote smith. Um, I have two quotes that I would pass on and they're kind of related. The first one is doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will. So just try, just start. Don't let the doubt make you talk yourself out of it. If you just give it a go, you'll probably figure out how much more capable you are and how much better your idea is than you actually think because we're trained to be risk-averse. We're trained to protect ourselves from failure, but sometimes you just need to give it a go to be able to see what you can really achieve. And the second one is done is better than perfect. And that is a follow-on from the other one, which is just that you need to just do it. Just get started. Don't wait for the perfect moment. You don't actually know what the perfect product is until you get your first iteration out because it's feedback from the real market that's going to tell you what they want. And our first bag, you know, the bag that we have now is 5,000 iterations since then. We've changed it constantly to adapt to, you know, learnings from just getting it out there. But you can't actually make progress until you've started. We're in the most exciting time to be alive. Yeah. The rise of the entrepreneur, isn't it? It is. It's, it's a time of the small business and it, Instagram and social media has really democratized influence. Like you don't have to be a head honcho that's had 10 years of experience in an industry to make a go of it and to like really take on the big players. It's the small guys who are really making a difference. So- I mean, the innovation is being done by the small guys. I mean, you look at Unilever, you look at um, Mars and all these guys. I mean, what products have they developed recently? They haven't developed things and bought products. So the small guys have got the real opportunity to, to, to lead the industries at the moment. If you're sitting on an idea, there's so many resources out there. There are constant business workshops, mm. seminars, you know, incubators. There's, there's There are people like us who answer questions all the time. Like, make use of this time. Yeah. You couldn't do it 10 years ago. So. My other one is cash flows king. Now, a lot of people go, I've got this idea, so they quit their job and try and do their idea. Sarah's a perfect example. We were scaling and she was still working six months into the business journey. Um, that money that we're making in revenue had to go back into stock. If she wasn't working, where was that money going to come from? I just think you can't do anything without cash flow, so make sure that when you're cutting your cash flow off, you can still survive because otherwise it's going to be a very short business journey. I can totally see why you two make such a powerful and dynamic team. Plus, I could not agree more with this sentiment about this is the this is the rise of the entrepreneurs. I wish you every success in the future and we'll certainly be watching you as well to see how you build this business onwards and upwards. Thank you so much for Thanks, having us. Good to speak to you. Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Sarah Holloway and Nick Davidson and reflect on an insight from their food entrepreneur journey. Now, you heard Sarah and Nick call themselves ideas people, and they've had to actively turn away from promising new business opportunities to focus their effort on just two matcha-based businesses. But I think they're more than ideas people. I'd call them big trend riders. And look, go with me on this analogy. It's kind of like big wave surfers, those people who catch those massive ocean waves that are over 30 feet tall. It takes skill and courage, but if you do it, it's a hell of a ride. 
and I think this is Sarah and Nick's secret, they play on the cutting edge of emerging trends. And by this, I mean they keep their eye on the horizon. They see an opportunity rising like matcha powder and plant-based foods, and they jump into position to harness that growing trend. This was evident when Sarah and Nick returned to Australia and realised how much we were lagging in our awareness of and access to quality matcha powder. And they were amongst the first to create dedicated matcha powder products in Australia and put them firmly at the heart of a wellness business that blossomed as a result. Now, I've recently read an article in which a business analyst warned food startups against the dangers of setting up a business based on a fleeting ingredient trend. And that begs the question, how do you know when a new food, ingredient or flavor will be fleeting or when it will become sustainable enough to build a business on? Because I think that's exactly what Sarah and Nick have done with Matcha Maiden. They've taken what was a niche ingredient, matcha tea powder, and driven its awareness and adoption by a much broader audience. They've moved it on from appealing only to hardcore or alternative health and tea aficionados into something that my mum would drink. And she's a pretty reliable benchmark for mainstream adoption. So today I'd like to talk about this phenomenon. And I call it the trickle-down effect. It occurs when niche flavors, ingredients, or products that initially appeal only to a small, dedicated, high-interest group of people actually flows down the food chain to be adopted as an everyday purchase by the mass market. Now, the trickle-down effect happens in a lot of other industries, like fashion. It's when something, for example, might start at the fashion catwalks with designer labels, but over time becomes more accessible and adopted by mass market brands. However, the trickle-down effect doesn't always happen. Sometimes it can stall and a new food just remains niche, like cheese tea, or it can be breathtakingly intense and fleeting, like the waning cronut craze that used to have people queuing for two hours in New York. But at other times, the trickle-down effect occurs in full, and this results in food and beverages becoming part of the social fabric of our daily lives, like quinoa, smashed avocado, salted caramel, kale, and almond milk has. So how do you know when an ingredient, food or flavour will stay niche or go mainstream? Well, that's the job of food and beverage trend agencies. These crystal ball gazers identify emerging foods, flavours and ingredients and link them to big consumer needs like better health, personalisation, discovery or escapism. And then they report at which stage of adoption these foods are at. They might be just emerging or gaining momentum or becoming mainstream to becoming ubiquitous. That means it's basically found everywhere. So how do they know? Well, they track how and when a food, flavor or ingredient flows down the food chain. And the trickle down effect of a full food chain goes something like this. It starts at high end restaurants. It then appears in social media it's then ranged in specialty stores, it's then used in food service outlets, and finally it appears on mass market supermarket shelves. 
So what does all this mean for you and your business? Well, you can personally track the trickle-down effect. Just go online and Google a product, a flavor, or an ingredient that you're interested in for a new product or maybe even a business startup and take notes. How far down the food chain is it appearing? How many mentions is it getting at each stage? And how fast is it moving down the chain? So, for example, let's say you'd been tracking quinoa. You would have first noticed its appearance in high-end restaurants in 2011 as a new ancient grain, domesticated some 5,000 years ago and sourced from Bolivia and Peru. You then would have seen it pop up in blogs, feature articles and health gurus' recipes as a low-GI, gluten-free and protein-rich superfood. Then you would have found it ranged on shelf, maybe in a specialty health food store or online shops or a farmer's market. It would then have appeared in burger buns in McDonald's or in smoothies at Boost Juice. And finally, it would appear on shelf next to the microwavable packets of rice and in frozen meals in Coles and Woolworth stores. Now, the trickle-down effect can be a golden ticket for food entrepreneurs because niche opportunities are often manageable on a small scale to begin with. They're perfect for a food startup to cut their teeth on. And many big food companies, although they may see the same emerging trend or opportunity, they tend to walk away from these because they're too small or too risky to warrant their time and investment until it's proven to become mass appeal and offer sizable economies of scale. I often remember presenting to directors of big food who scoffed at my enthusiasm of finding a new opportunity. What? 10 million in one year? Oh, come back when it's 20 million, they used to say. However, these days, I know many food entrepreneurs who would quite happily run a $10 million business. In fact, for many of us, that niche would actually be a success story. Getting back to our big trend riders, Sarah and Nick, they found emerging food trends that offer meaningful well-being benefits. This is evident not just with their matcha maiden products, but also in their success with the matcha milk bar. Now, this cafe takes the well-being experience to a whole new level with its sustainable plant-based longevity offerings. In fact, as Nick said, when they started, there was only a handful of hardcore, guilt-wielding vegetarian restaurants. And now, every cafe is scrambling to offer plant-based alternatives. Part art, part strategy. Sarah and Nick have harnessed the power of the trickle-down effect and are delivering high-quality matcha and plant-based foods in an accessible and highly appealing way that's building a well-being community. And if you don't believe me, just ask their 87,000-plus Instagram followers what they think. Well, that's it for episode 12. I'd like to thank my guests today, Sarah Holloway and Nick Davidson from Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar, for sharing their inspiring food entrepreneur story with us. And thank you again for listening. If you like the podcast, please pay it forward and share it with a friend. And do join me next time to eat, drink and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? 
you can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 